All right, let's turn our scriptures, open your scriptures to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. We're going to read, we read that whole chapter last week, so this is our second week in Daniel 4. This week we're going to look at some literary emphases in this passage, in this whole chapter, and read some selected texts, and then we'll stand at the end and read the last passage. Uh, of this text. So right now, let's begin this way. After the baptism of his baby brother in church, Jason sobbed all the way home in the back seat of his car. His dad's listening to the sobbing and he asked him three times, Jason, what's wrong? Why are you crying? Jason, what's got you so upset? And finally, the boy replied, the preacher said that he wanted us to be brought up in a Christian home and I wanted to stay with you guys. Someone sent that via email, and I thought that was great. Now, children have what? They have that gift. They have that gift to tell it like they see it. They have a gift of just being able to see what's taking place and then speak it, where we, as we get older, we get a little more refined, and the fear of man is much more greater, and it restrains us, though we might think it. Well, Daniel 4 has that same unique gift. It has that unique gift of seeing it like it is and telling it like it is, and it's always right. It sees it like it is, for instance, in Daniel 4, that Daniel sees no difference between verse 33 and 30. Let's look at 33. Just tells it like it is. This is the fulfilling. Immediately the word of God was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from among men, and he ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws." Now, the scripture tells it like it is. It paints this picture. It shows what's becoming of Nebuchadnezzar. He's becoming beast-like. But if you go to verse 33, or let's go to verse 30 now, it sees no difference between that and this passage. Look what he says in verse 30. The king answered and said, Is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power, as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Scripture tells it like it is. This incredible boast and Nebuchadnezzar becoming a beast, there's no difference in Daniel 4 between this. There's no difference in Daniel 4 between sin and insanity is what we're going to come to find out. Now, can you relate to this? Can you relate to the fact that you know you're not doing well? There are times in your life when you know you're not doing well. But you can't put a finger on what exactly is going on. You know what I mean? You sense something's going on. You know there's some troubles going on. You know there's distress going on, but there's not the aha moment. You don't see what specifically it is that's going on. You have these vague notions and clues that come your way that I'm not right. Something's not right. You have things like you see behavior that's not good that comes out of you, and you're like, that's not right. Something's something's not right. You get clues from other people, maybe conflict and confrontation or comments that they make. You also know that you sense this melancholy, this, this somber and this downcast spirit within you, as the psalmist said. Why am I downcast? What's going on with me? You also have clues from your radical interpretations of things. In other words, you go through the day and you catch yourself interpreting reality. You catch yourself interpreting conversations and you catch yourself interpreting situations and it's always radically on the edge it's extreme and it usually has to do with you oh look at the way that person's looking at me 
Well, that comment was directed right at me. Have you had those times? You have this time where you kind of wake up and you actually see the ticker tape of your thoughts go by and you cannot believe how you're so self-absorbed with yourself at this time. Have you had those times? But you can't put a finger on what exactly is going on. What's the problem here? What's the source of this? You wish that there would be some sort of magical light that would just shine in the darkness and show you what's going on. Ah, there's the missing piece. Aha, I see it. And now I can deal with it. You wish that that would take place. You wish there was this faithful friend who's always faithful and perfectly wise, a great combination. And they just come alongside you and they say, Jeff, this is what's going on. I'm so glad to at least know what it is so that I can deal with it. Well, Daniel 4 has that kind of commitment to you because it's God's word. And it has that kind of wise clarity that kind of cuts through it all and shows you the core issue of your troubles. Troubles that we will be unpacking in these next couple of weeks together. But even more importantly, it cuts to the core issue of your triumph. The stuff of your trusting. It gets to the very content of your changing. The stuff of sanity and the stuff of mental, spiritual healthiness and heartness. It gets to those kind of realities because this text has this wonderful way of just telling you like it sees it. In other words, there's two ways you can go about it. Right. And we know we have some doctors in here and we have parents in here and you've all done it. There's two ways you can be dealt with when you need to be dealt with. There's one way is that you can slowly, you know, the Band-Aid, those big sticky Band-Aids that are very sticky now made to be uh, weather and water resistant. You get them on you. I've had them on me. Strawberries, playing softball. You can rip them off in two ways. I had a huge strawberry right here on the back of my leg. There's two ways you can do it. You can slowly each hair, ow, ow, or you just go and rip it off, right? This passage has a way of just going in and quickly ripping it off. It doesn't slowly prick you. It goes, here's the issue, to do good to you, okay? All right, let's do this. We're going to literarily look at this passage and we'll read a couple just to kind of get ourselves oriented. It those of us that are joining us today and uh, those of us that uh, have been with us. Daniel 4 makes great use of suspense. OK, it makes wonderful use of suspense. Suspense starts right at the beginning because a decree is issued. If you look at verse one, King Nebuchadnezzar to all the peoples, nations and languages that dwell on earth. He's issuing a decree to all his. All his nations, all his conquered peoples. This is like the U.N. meeting and he's the head guy and he's got them all there and he sends out this decree. And suspense begins to build because in verse two, I mean, uh, uh, they receive it. You can imagine these guys receiving it. They've already received several decrees from Nebuchadnezzar. The first one was come see me. We're going to see this giant golden image. And when you hear the music, you bow down in your worship. So you can imagine if you're a king or you're what's called a vassal lord and you're in charge of your own people and you receive this summons or this decree and you say to yourself, what's he going to make us do now? 
Am I going to have to get my whole tribal family together and we got to hike up to Susra again and let this crazy guy build this statue that we're going to bow down to again? What's he got? Well, the suspense builds when it begins in two and he says, it has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders of the Most High and what he's done for me. Now, that must have stunned them. What is that? What has this Most High God and they're learning the language of this because they've had a couple chapters already with the Israelites and Nebuchadnezzar's interaction. Now, this is the God the Israelites say is above all the gods. What has he done for him? Suspense. This decrees about it. So they start moving. What is the Most High done? Well, the search continues with the suspense as they try to find out what the interpretation, a dream is given. And I bet they thought their fears, their worst fears were answered because they remember the first dream Nebuchadnezzar went, led to a golden giant, led to falling down and worship on the plains of Susra out there. So they receive this second one and they're like, okay, well, the suspense continues. They can't find any wise men in all Babylon that can interpret it. Finally, we're like, why don't you ask Daniel first? Move to Daniel. We get to Daniel and we finally gets to Daniel and Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar the dream. Right. And in this dream, there's this huge cosmic tree and this cosmic tree is in the center of creation. And this cosmic tree extends earth to heaven. It connects earth and heaven in the center of creation, this massive cosmic tree. And Daniel says uh, that there is a watcher that comes from this heavenly court, from this heavenly court of God, this watcher comes. And when Daniel hears that, he, his ears go up and he gives the interpretation. He says, oh, the watcher said that. So this is very important. This is coming from the very throne room of God himself. And the watcher says the tree is to be cut down. And notice what happens in verse 15. The tree becomes a he. Look in 15. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, and the tender grass of the field, let him, for we've gone from tree now to him, let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be that of the beasts of the grass of the earth. And then the he, in verse 16, becomes a beast, right? All right, the suspense heightens with Daniel's response to the dream. Look at verse 19. Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, who was dismayed for a while and his thoughts alarmed him. And the king answered and said to him, why are you? Don't don't be alarmed. I mean, imagine this again. This is Daniel. He's just seen the man that just destroyed Jerusalem, his beloved Jerusalem, the man that has taken many of his family into exile, the man that just almost burned three of his best friends. And and his response isn't like about time. Get him, God. It was. He's alarmed and he's actually even saddened for the king. It's amazing. So we're still not told what's taking place, but we have this suspense hiding with Daniel's response. Well, Daniel now interprets the dream. And after he interprets it, he says, look, king, you are the tree. And you will become a beast. Rip. Just a quick rip. Someone that just says it like they see it, and they're right every time. 
Now, Daniel's interpretation of the dream adds further suspense because after he interprets it, he adds suspense on top of suspense because he adds the suspense of repentance. Will Nebuchadnezzar repent? Look at verse 27. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Okay, will King Nebuchadnezzar repent? Well, we get the answer in verses 28 to verse 33, and the answer is no. But notice what happens in 28. There's a shift in the point of view of the narrator. First, we're in first person. Nebuchadnezzar speaking, Daniel speaking. But then when we get to 28, notice we move to third person. Now, lots of ink has been spilled over this, particularly from liberal theologians, because they think that, aha, there must be another source that's been inserted in here. That Daniel isn't, or whoever the author is, is not the primary author here. That there's another source that worked itself in. But once we see the literary context, I think it becomes real clear. In fact, one commentary said this, the switch to the third person is a literary device to show that the king himself was unable to give an account of what happened to him while he was out of his mind. So he's narrating. I mean, you see, it's pulling you into the story. I send out a decree. I, I have this dream. This is what happens. The watcher says this to me. Daniel, what do you think? Daniel tells, this is what's taken place. Here's the interpretation. O king, I urge you to repent. And then, boom, third person. And Nebuchadnezzar's gone. And he's out of his mind. Okay? All right, let's stand and read 34 through 37. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and my splendor were returned to me. My counselors and my lords, they sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, I praise and extol and I honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Father, we ask your blessing on this word. We do know that you alone give life. So, Lord, we don't want to search these scriptures in vain. We want to search them in such a way by your spirit that they lead us to you. And so, oh, Lord, would you open our eyes that we might see the multicolored perfections of Jesus And by beholding, we would become. Would you give me help? Would you give all of us ears to hear and eyes to see? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
All right, we're looking at what is sanity. What's normal? What's a normal Christian life? What's a normal human being? What does a normal image bearer look like? What is spiritual healthiness? That's the question that we're exploring in Daniel 4. But we're doing it in reverse. In other words, Daniel 4 answers that question in reverse by showing you insanity. So we're going to look at what is sanity, but we're going to answer what is sanity by looking at what is insanity. So in our next couple of times together in the future, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the particular imbalances in the mind and the heart that drive us to insanity. Now, I'm using that word insanity metaphorically. I'm not using it as literal mental illness. I'm using it in the picture that the scriptures are given here. What is normal? What's spiritual healthiness? What does a true human look like, act like, think like, desire like, love like? What is it? We're going to get to it, but we're going to get it to in reverse. But remember, what we've done is we... We've we went to a little refresher introductory course on how to read and interpret and teach and apply the Bible. So we went to a little introductory refresher course on how to read your Bible rightly. And that's what we did last week. And remember there when we did that, we introduced what we called the story approach of the scriptures. To read your Bible rightly, particularly in the Old Testament, you've got to make a decision. You've got to make a decision whether this Bible comes in one story or it comes in a bunch of individual, isolated, unrelated ideas and truths and techniques and how-tos and pictures and stories. In other words, does the Bible come like God's Word And that it's God's word in intention, that God's word has a purpose to it and tell us to it. Does it have a one story approach to it or there's several stories to it? And you've got to resolve that. And what we're going to do here in a moment is just further nail down that the scripture gives its own lens for how you read it. Theologians historically have called it the redemptive historical approach. We're calling it the storyline approach, the story approach. In other words, God's words, one story. Various chapters, but one story. So wherever you go into the scriptures, you must have the context of the whole story to understand the pieces and the parts that you're dealing with in the Bible. If you take the Bible a passage in the Bible, and do not relate it to the storyline of the Bible, but pull it out for yourself and hold it and do not relate it. You read it, you apply it, you interpret it out of context. Does that make sense? It's kind of like this. It's like, uh, it's like this. You have a passage. The first step is to immediately go to the storyline From the storyline, go to you. Don't take a passage and immediately go to you. If you do that, it's like taking one piece of a 10,000 piece puzzle, pulling it out, reading it, interpreting it, explaining it, teaching it, applying it, 
but you have no idea where this piece fits in the whole puzzle. And what you're left with is holding this piece all by yourself and placing it by yourself. What you intuitively think it means. Where you subjectively think it should go. Do you see the difference? Or do you see this piece in light of the whole picture of the puzzle? Oh, I don't know. That's the tall grass in the far corner of this 10,000 piece picture of green fields. It's that blade of grass in light of that. Otherwise, you look at it, you don't know what it is, but you'll intuitively make it say something. All right. What I'd like to do is I'd like for us to to go another layer in reading our Bible rightly. And then we're going to end by doing this, taking Daniel four and applying the storyline approach to Daniel four. In other words, how does Daniel four lead you to the storyline of Jesus? We're going to specifically do that. I'm going to it's almost like we're all in my study on Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday. And you're all sitting over here while I'm typing up and I've got all my books over here and my accordance here and my computer here. And we're all watching the process of going to the storyline of Jesus. And I want you to see how this text does it. And then we'll come to us. All right. All right. Let's do this. What I want to say again, I'm not saying you don't go to yourself. I'm not saying don't go to you in the scriptures. What I'm saying is from him flows application to you. Do you see the difference? Do not hear me saying, oh, Jeff doesn't believe in application and he's not going to apply the text. No, I'm going to apply the text from the storyline, not immediately to me or to you from the text. Okay. All right, let's do it. So, well, what else do I want to say here? Let's do... All right, let's do it this way. Go to John 5:39. John 5:39. Now, not only is John 5:39 telling you the story approach, but it's telling you that the story approach is the divine lens of scripture. Look what the passage says up in 39. You search the scriptures. Now remember, what scripture do these guys have? What scriptures do the Pharisees have? What scripture do the disciples have? What scripture does Jesus have? The Old Testament. So they're not even talking about the New Testament at this point. So we're at the Old Testament. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me. You refuse to come to me in the scriptures, he's saying, then. And you refuse to come to me now as I'm interpreting them for you. Okay, that you may have life. Now, later in the passage, Jesus tells him, look, Moses, your hero is the one that's going to accuse you for misreading your Bible. I'm not going to accuse you. And why does he say that? Because in verse 46, he says, because Moses wrote of me. Now, notice Jesus is not giving specifics at this point on how you read Moses in light of the storyline. But he is making the case that the ultimate context, the ultimate storyline of the scripture is him. Even in the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So if you're going to read those books rightly, search them. 
interpret them, teach them, apply them, and try to find life in them. Apart from the storyline of Jesus, you misread them. And there's no life, there's no power, there's no presence of God, there's no good news in it. Okay? All right. So, let's move on here. If we say, if, let's do this, we're going to immediately go to Nebuchadnezzar right now. If you look at uh, Nebuchadnezzar chapter 4, let's go back to chapter 4. How do you read Nebuchadnezzar in light of this? All right, we've gone from you've got to take a text, you've got to go to the storyline. From the storyline, you come to yourself. Jesus tells you that this is the overall arching way of looking at the Scriptures, particularly the Old Testament. He says, look, you can search the Scriptures, but ultimately you've got to come to me, and from me you go to you. All right? Now, how do we do this with Nebuchadnezzar? Well, first you take Nebuchadnezzar, and what do you do? You go to the storyline of Jesus, then you go to us. All right. Or we go to ourselves. Now, there are three ways this text does this. I want you to look at this. There's three ways the text actually takes you to the storyline of Jesus immediately. All right. The first is all history included in Scripture is recorded because it served the storyline. Think about that. The Bible, when it records history. It's selective in its history that it records because the history that's being recorded in the Bible is serving the storyline of Jesus. It served the redemptive storyline. And it serves the redemptive storyline now as we read it. So all history in the scriptures is ultimately there to serve the storyline. In other words, it's not like I have uh, Usher's, the annals of the world. The Bible is not a world history that's going to document all of Egyptian history. It's not going to tell you everything that went on in history. It is going to tell you the history that served the redemptive storyline. So when we, get to, when we get to King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, that's history. How does King Nebuchadnezzar serve the storyline? How does he do that? Well, if we immediately go to ourselves, we think we're kings. But not only that, Nebuchadnezzar served as a king to actually break up the prefigured kingdom of God or the typological kingdom of God in Israel. Remember in chapter 1? Nebuchadnezzar was God's historical agent that came in and destroyed Israel. So we can't immediately apply that to ourselves. Now, if you're an Israelite and you're reading this and you're an Israelite and you're seeing this and you're seeing the type of you're seeing the kingdom of God fall before your eyes, you're asking yourself, has God's promises failed us? I mean, what's happening to God's kingdom plan? And now we as we read the scripture and we look at Israel fall and we see the kingdom fall and you should ask yourself, is he is he failing in his promises for Israel? Is he not coming through for Israel? If he's not coming through for Israel, how can I count on him to come through for me? Do you see what the passage is doing? So, King Nebuchadnezzar served a very unique role in the history of the story in that he breaks up 
the pattern of the kingdom of God in Israel. And you've got to ask yourself, Israelite and Christian, are we watching God's promises fail? Or are we watching God's promises go forward? Do you see the difference? Are we watching God's promises of the kingdom falling before our eyes? Or are we watching a pattern move away, making room for, going forward for, to the one who will be the perfection of the kingdom of God? Now remember, if you get caught up in Israel and you think Israel is the perfection of the kingdom of God, the end all of God's plans, like the Pharisees did, if you think that, when Jesus shows up, you can't see him. But if Israel was a pattern meant to prepare you for the superhero, you're able to see him. And so King Nebuchadnezzar has a very unique role in the history of redemption and that he's the agent that destroys the pattern. Boom. Okay. Now, did God's promises fail or is his passes or is his promises going forward? All right. The plot thickens when we realize that in Daniel one, verse one and two, that Nebuchadnezzar is not the primary agent, but God is. Because remember, it says God gave Jerusalem over. God gave into Nebuchadnezzar's hands Jerusalem. So we see that even now Nebuchadnezzar is only an instrument. So why did God do this? Why did he do this? We've got to keep moving forward. The plan's going forward. All right, the second way. So first way is this. First way you go from the text, from Nebuchadnezzar to the redemptive storyline, is all history in the Bible, all major events, all major people, all major places, all major institutions, they point primarily to the storyline of Jesus. Not to me and not to you. Primarily to the storyline of Jesus. Then you go from the storyline to ourselves. So here we have King Nebuchadnezzar, a king, a Babylonian king, served to destroy the pattern of the kingdom of God. Is God's plans failing or are they moving forward? Okay. now we know they're moving forward. Second way we know is Revelation uses Babylon as the symbol of state government that goes beastly. Isn't that interesting? Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, when the New Testament gets a hold of them, when the New Testament looks back on this, in Revelation, it says, it takes Nebuchadnezzar, it takes Babylon, and it says, any state government that goes lusting after power and places and purse, it's a beast. And in Revelation, Babylon becomes beastly. And it becomes a beast that's made in the image of another big picture of a dragon. And this dragon hovers over the waters, counterfeiting God, and calls a beast out of the waters, a counterfeit creation, and places the beast in its own image, Revelation. And Revelation says that Babylon is the symbol of the beast. The beast lusts after power and fame and fortune and conquest of land and, and money. And the beast attacks the kingdom of God. It craves the blood of martyrs. It craves the blood of saints. 
It cannot stand. It detests the power and rule of God's grace. But then in Revelation, there's this great rider who rides a white horse. And tattooed across his thighs are King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And what does he do? He runs down the beast. And he fulfills Genesis 3.17 and he steps on the head of the serpent and crushes it. So we have two ways already in Daniel 4 where the text goes to the redemptive storyline. One is in its history. Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar is a king. We're not kings and we didn't break up the kingdom of God in Israel. They did. So again, what part of the story are they playing? They're an instrument that's actually moving the kingdom of God and God's promises forward to the perfection. Okay? If we get hung up here with Israel being the perfection, we're going to miss this connection. All right, lastly. Well, let's say this too. Don't miss what Nebuchadnezzar becomes at the end of this chapter. What does he become? A beast. Do you see the themes? He becomes what is pictured then in Revelation. All right, last one is this. Jesus applies the rock in Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2 to himself in Luke 20. So here's the third way the passage connects to Jesus. Remember, there's this ghastly giant, and it's massive, it's golden. Uh, All of a sudden, there's these feet that have clay and iron mixture, And this pebble, this rock comes whizzing by and Nebuchadnezzar hits the giant and it implodes at the feet. The feet shatter and it comes breaking down. Jesus says in Luke 20, that rock is me. So even in right now in Daniel chapter two, we find the context that the dream is interpreted with Jesus being in the center. Okay, so Jesus Nebuchadnezzar's given this preview in Revelation of this white horse coming down and decimating the kingdoms of man, the beasts that rise up against the king. And right here we get a little picture in the form of a rock that smashes into these kingdoms. Okay. All right. Now, how does Jesus do that? Well, the remaining chapters tell us chapter 21, 22, 23 and 24. We see the cross and we see the crown that that's how he crushes these kingdoms. All right, so here's the point. Nebuchadnezzar's primary purpose in Daniel 4 is to point to the bigger story of a savior king. There's our point. The primary purpose of Nebuchadnezzar is to point to the bigger story of a savior king. And just in case we miss it, look at the last words in chapter 4. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. If you look carefully you're going to see that there's a preview of the one who comes and conquers in that verse. What he's saying, he is able to, he is able to humble the ones who walk in pride. That word able literally means have power over, prevail over, come, be victor over, win. In other words, what Nebuchadnezzar is ultimately pointing to is there's one who wins always. God always wins. That's the point. He always wins. He never loses. And God is showing 
through the life of Israel and he's showing through the life of Babylon. He shows through the life of three friends. He shows through the life of Daniel. He shows through the life of Nebuchadnezzar. Israel, God always wins. Always. He wins over kings and kingdoms. He wins over beasts. He wins over every situation and every setting. He wins over sin. He wins over your situation. He wins over your sadness and your stresses and your sickness. He wins even over death. Is that this king wins. And now you can go to you. Once we've connected that the storyline is that Daniel is pointing to the Savior King who always wins, now we come to us. And so this passage is meant to comfort Israel in this way. Israel's in exile and it's meant to say to Israel, Oh, Israel, hope in your king. He always wins. He's upholding you right now with his strong right hand. And not only that, Israel, he's upholding Babylon and even the heart of Nebuchadnezzar. You can trust him. Hope in him. And then it's written here for us because it's all part of a story. It's not an isolated story. It was meant for God's people and generations to come to read. It was recorded here for you and me. And it's here to encourage us and comfort us as we walk in sadness and strife and stress and sickness and suffering and being sinned against in our own sin. And the comfort is Oh, people of God, he's faithful and he always wins. He's upholding you right now in his hand. And he even upholds your suffering in his hand. And he's even upholding your life situation in his hand right now. And he wins over it. The Lord which is mentioned in chapter 1. That's the way that Lord God is referred to in chapter 1 as Lord. Capital L, lowercase o, R-D. Not all capital, which is covenant Yahweh. It's Lord. It's Adonai. You know what that means? Suzerain king. And it's ironic that it begins with that title when we're getting ready to see one of the greatest pagan kings and kingdoms in the history of the world, but the Lord wants Israel to know, no, he's not your suzerain king. I am. And it means almighty, the almighty. He's above and beyond all kings and all kingdoms of men. He's the one who sits on the throne of heaven and earth. This Lord, in chapter 1, he's saying, he wins. When you get to chapter 2, the the picture of God that we're given is this rock, and this rock that comes flying in and crushes what we come to find out is all the kingdoms of men. And this rock crushes it. So in chapter 2, we see the rock king, and he always wins. Then we get to chapter 3, and we see three friends go into a fire. And we see that the word used over and over again from the mouth of Nebuchadnezzar, who will deliver you from my hand? Because I'm king. And over and over again, it says, no one could deliver. He can't deliver. The Lord delivers. In chapter 3, we get a picture of the Lord as the rescuing king. He always wins. Chapter 4, we come to what's used over and over again. Heaven 
kingship, dominion, most high God. In chapter 4, we get this king of heaven, and he always wins. And then the last chapter, or the last part that we just read in this passage, when Nebuchadnezzar lifts his eyes to heaven and is told that he is humbled, we get a king who's a redeeming king, a savior king, who even wins over a sinner. One of the greatest kings in all the world. And he beats him through conversion. Do you see the picture? This is a story about a savior king who always wins. All right? So here's how we're going to end. Many of you are deeply aware right now that you feel a deep desperation for the divine help that's in this passage this morning. In other words, you're aware that you need this divine help. You're aware that you need the reality of God always wins being pushed into your life. That there would be a coursing through your mind and your heart and the veins of your body. That there would be the grace of this passage pushed into your life. You're deeply aware that you need it. You're deeply aware you need the divine assistance. What I want you to do is breathe in these words like they're the very breath of God themselves. God always wins. Breathe that in like it's God's breath himself. And when you begin to breathe it in, plead with God for the peace, because he always wins, you can plead for the peace that he gives that's found in him when you're filled with anxiety. Because God always wins, you can say right now, God, you always win. So I, I ask you for your peace. I ask you for your peace right now. I am consumed with fear and worry and anxiety. Because you always win, I ask you for it. You can pray right now for his power that's found in God always winning. In this passage right now, you can apply it to you. Oh, God, you always win. I ask you for your power while you're convincing yourself one more time that you're never going to change. Never going to change. God, you always win. I plead for your power. You can plead with God for his pleasure because he always wins. Right now you can say, oh, God, I ask you for your pleasure because my heart is shrinking with the pleasures of this world. The pleasures of this world have captured me. The pleasures of this world are captivating me. The pleasures of this world are sucking the life out of me. I, I ask you for your pleasure because you always win. Because he always wins right now, you can pray and plead for his pardon. I mean, those of you that know, you've come to the deep realization, probably maybe now, that you are dead in your sins and you're lost in your sins. You know you're not a Christian. Because God always wins, you can plead his pardon right now. And you can look at Nebuchadnezzar, who was a beast. 
So much so, he became the symbol of utter animosity for the kingdom of God in Revelation. And God won over him. And he can win over you. Also, you Christian, you know that right now you might feel a deep conscious awareness of the vileness of your own sin. And it's hard believing that you're forgiven. And there you know there's a distance and there's a distress in your life towards the Lord and towards other people. You feel it. You know it because there's this sense in which you're aware of your own vileness and your own sin. And you confess it and you confess it again. You do it. You confess it. You do it. And there's just a deep sense of, I don't know if he's going to forgive me this time. Because God always wins. You can plead and pray for his pardon. And get it. Breathe in the word, the ultimate meaning of Daniel 4. Next time we get together, we're going to unpack more of the implications of us going from the story to us as we look at the imbalances of sin that drive us to insanity. But we have to first see, because the theme's going to come back over and over again, as we look at the imbalances of sin in us, we look at the imbalances that are in us that drive us to insanity. What is our hope amidst that stuff? The major The major redemptive storyline, the major Jesus storyline is going to be that he always wins. And it will be applied to all these different areas. So I wanted you to kind of, we did a little different today. We kind of went into the sweat of the exegetical process. I wanted you to see that to read your Bible rightly, you go from the passage to the Jesus storyline, then to you. Okay. Now there's power in breathing in these words that God always wins. Let's pray.